This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know the truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Yeah, but that's alright. Yeah, that's okay. I don't know anything. Hello, I'm Adam Conover. Welcome to Factually and. We all have this vague sense that monopolies are bad, right? Politicians complained about them. I think Teddy Roosevelt hated them. I think I heard that in history class. And come on, we all know there's something devious hiding under that board game guy's top hat, right? He looks way too smug. But what exactly is it that's so bad about them, right? We don't often unpack what the issue actually is. Well, the truth is, when one company dominates an entire industry, it makes our lives worse in countless ways. Now, the obvious one is prices, right? When companies compete on price, that brings lower costs to you, but if only one company dominates, they can jack up the prices. Since you don't have anywhere else to turn, you're screwed, right? But much more important than prices is power. When a company dominates an industry, they gain a massive amount of power that they can use to harm others for their benefit. And this happens in countless ways. Just for one example, they can use their dominance to push out potential competitors. Take Amazon. Amazon controls close to 40% of the entire online retail market on that platform. And since they don't just run the store, but they sell their own products on that store, they can use that power over the market to push their own products, whether diapers or body wash, to directly undercut their competition. And since they're so massive, they're able to sell their products at a loss almost indefinitely in order to gain even more power. How can any business owner compete with a company that is so huge they can actually operate at a loss just to win? (laughs) But it's not just competition and prices. Companies with too much power can also mess with how much workers like you make. Think about it. When you choose which company to work for, you're selling your labor in exchange for a paycheck, right? Well, if there's only one buyer for that labor, then your wages are going to take a hit because that company doesn't have to compete with anyone else for your services. So whether you're a nurse working in an area with just one hospital or a farmer with only one mill to sell your grain to, or hey, a TV writer like me and there's only one or two streaming services left in town, a monopoly means you lose money. 
And hey, so maybe the fact that monopolies have been forming all over America in multiple industries in recent decades, that might explain our decades of stagnant wage growth, huh? What do you think? But most importantly, the economic power that these monopolies have also give them unfair power in our society. For instance, they can use all their cash to influence the government, especially when they feel like they're under threat. Money is speech in America, and monopolistic companies have the money to shout at the top of their lungs, drowning out the rest of us small business owners and employees who can only whimper or, I guess, tweet with our tiny voices. Secondly, their unfettered power over entire industries can actually change the way our society functions. For instance, a Pew survey found that 43% of adults get their news from Facebook. So that means that Mark Zuckerberg's unilateral decisions about what kind of information to spread or encourage affects what ideas get heard in our society and which don't. The rest of us don't get a say in that. Zuckerberg gets to decide all by himself. This massive amount of power concentrated into the hands of just a few executives is not just bad, it's also inherently undemocratic. Think about it. Our society is founded on the notion that we all collectively decide how it operates, right? So when power rivaling that of our own government is wielded by the CEO of just one company in ways that the rest of us can't control, well, that's the opposite of democracy. That is autocracy. And you know what? Americans throughout history have actually known this. That's why from Teddy Roosevelt's day through the New Deal and after, American policymakers have taken steps to break up monopolies or to stop new ones from forming so that no one company holds too much power over our society. Fighting against monopoly power is actually part of America's political DNA. But, you know, somehow... It seems like we forgot how to do that. We now live in an age of massive consolidation. In just about any industry you can imagine, industries that affect our lives deeply, four companies now control 98% of the cell phone provider market. Three companies control 75% of the beer market. Airlines, cable companies, even dry cat food is now a monopolized industry. And things are only getting worse. If we had at one time such a strong anti-monopoly movement, movement, how did we end up here? Well, to answer this question, our guest today is Matt Stoller. He's a fellow at the Open Markets Institute, and he's the author of the book Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Please welcome Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So I first found your work through your wonderful newsletter called Big, where you, and I hope folks listening, please go sign up to it because it's really fantastic, really fun, readable look at monopoly power in America today. You did a great piece a couple months ago, first one I read called uh, The the Slow Death of Hollywood, I believe, about Netflix's uh, monopoly power um, or near monopoly power and what that's doing to the entertainment industry. It really articulated so much of what folks in my industry are thinking right now, and people were sending it around to each other in L.A., in, you know, uh, in the entertainment industry, um, saying, yeah, this really explains what's going on right now. Uh, it was a real talk in, you know, uh, Writers Guild union circles, for example. And you just came out with a new piece, uh, as we're recording this, just came out yesterday, about, uh, it's called, It's Time to Break Up Disney, <laughs> which is a really wonderful... 
uh, wonderful thesis. Yeah, I, could you talk about that a little bit? Why should we break up Disney and why should we be worried about the power of Netflix? Yeah, so just to kind of give a like a, a predicate for all of this. So I started thinking about monopoly power during the financial crisis and uh, which, you know, just screwed up our economy, these banks that were just basically too big to manage. And out of that, I developed a, a kind of appreciation for how problematic concentrated power can be and how destructive it is. And you see concentrated power everywhere in our economy. So it's not just like Hollywood. It's, you know, it's search engines and airplanes and cable networks, but also like peanut butter markets, like coffins. It's it's just, it's kind of everywhere. And it has this particularly toxic impact on Hollywood because what monopolization does when you concentrate power over creative fields, it tends to bottleneck creativity itself in the hands of, of sort of nervous executives. Mm. And so what you're seeing is the weirder stuff, the more interesting stuff kind of doesn't get made. And I kind of noticed this over the course of several years, and then it turned into those two pieces. Um, and those pieces are basically about how there was a roll-up, uh, a gradual roll-up of power in the industry starting really in the 80s and 90s when you saw theater chains uh, kind of roll up into these megaplexes, which has to do with financing and private equity. But basically that's when like the theater chains exploded and started taking over all the independent theaters. And then um, that's the world I grew that, up with. I, I don't even remember. You read about the the independent theaters that used to exist. I barely remember going to theaters like that. When I see one, it's like old timey. I grew up with megaplexes. Right. Well, you know, back when we used to put onions on our belt, you know, and all that, like there were independent theaters. Um, but so like I start with Back to the Future, right, which is this movie uh, that, you know, it's a great movie in 1985. And it's like it's like a weird movie. Right. And I didn't realize this. You know, John John Mulaney has this amazing kind of stand up about how fucked up that movie is. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he goes back like, in time and, and he's get hit on by his mom. It's a really, really weird. You, it's hard to imagine the pitch for it. Right. In the yeah, room. No, he does the it's amazing. And also he has, uh, this is the thing that Mulaney goes to do, which I thought was just amazing where he was like, and his friend inexplicably is a disgraced nuclear physicist and he's a high school kid. And they <laughs> look, never explain why. Look, look, I know Mulaney's very funny. Okay. He's, I know he's a, the funniest comic in America and everyone can stop telling me that every single day. Cause I would love to be as funny as him and I do my best. So you don't need to rub it in how great he is. I agree. Let's move on. <laughs> well, I'm just hoping that I can use this podcast as a stepping stone to get on his podcast. Okay. That's my you know goal. what? You know what, man? <laughs> We're off to a rough start. Let's. <laughs> the point is, it's a weird movie. It's a hard movie to pitch, right? If you were just going to be like, hey, let's launch a brand today, right? You know, you wouldn't, that would be a really weird brand to, to launch. But the reason that it got made is because the filmmaker had made Romancing the Stone, which which did well. And so the people in Hollywood were like, well, this seems weird, but like, let's give him a shot. And then they didn't, it wasn't a huge risk to make the movie and distribute it because you just put it in a few theaters. And if it worked, kind of word of mouth would like carry it. And and that's what happened. So it's first weekend, it made $10 million. And then it basically made $10 million throughout every weekend over the summer and ended up making $385 million, which is just this, like, it's just an incredible uh, achievement for a film like that. But also it was a market, right? Like you didn't have to just, you know, do a marketing campaign. And then week one was basically how, you know, if you oh. didn't do well week once, sorry, it's over. Yeah, um, it was, you, you could, could, you could have the movie in theaters for a while. And if people liked it, they would tell their, it could stay on the shelf for a while and sell consistently over time. But now it's like, if the movie doesn't do well in the first week. You have to do so much marketing leading up. And if it doesn't do well in the first week, you're sunk and you might as well have not made a movie at all. 
That's right. And like that particular segment, like I particularly love comedies, right? Um, in particular, like John Mulaney style comedies, <laughs> like not not your kind of comedies, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, comedies, yeah. you know, like you, mm-hmm. you're in that sort of similar industry. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry. Keep digging, um, man. <laughs> no, I love comedies. Like I grew up on Mel Brooks, like with my family, we bonded over that stuff. And like, it's just, it, I just love comedies. And and that's the particular segment that's getting hurt the most because it's yeah. it's I guess it's probably the hardest stuff to pitch um, because comedians are weird right and they're the weirdest people and they're also I think the smartest people mm-hmm. in Hollywood because they basically observe like you know tricks of language and like it's kind of hard to explain sometimes like why it's something is funny but it just is it can just just be funny yeah and we can't have uh the, the sort of comedies that are made now i agree it's it's a terrible time for comedy movies because comedy movies are basically not made now unless they are action movies in disguise like every comedy now has to have for some reason like an actual drug dealer who's who like the people are trying to stop and then they get tied up and then they're in a dangerous situations like so many movies are that over and over again like if there's these very few sort of formulas that the movies have to fit into and yeah that would make sense because it is uh it has to be pitched to people without them actually seeing what the jokes are right <laughs> right without them like getting a sense of the sensibility you can't you can't just make like hey how about the jerk where it's like a movie about a weird funny guy and you know the end <laughs> right it's not right and that can't make and that that's now. because the risk of of introducing a new product is so much more extreme today because mm-hmm. you can't just put it in a few theaters and nor could you even sell it into a few theaters. You have to cut your deal with like, you know, I guess the AMC chain or, or whatever. Just like, it's just harder to introduce products in America in general because now, it used to be that there were locally owned stores all over the country. Now you have to go to Amazon or you have to go to Walmart and introduce your product in like, you know, a thousand stores or, you know, massive right. volume. You can't, you can't just like try out a few things here or there and that's why and like then get it right and then roll it out to more and more. And that's because you've seen this concentrated roll up of power. You also have much worse bargaining terms. So when you roll up the theater chains, then all of a sudden the studios have less bargaining power. So they have to combine so they can get more bargaining power. It's a kind of concentration yep. creep. And that's what you saw happen. And, um, and, and like the law, basically the laws were changed to enable this laws against merger prohibitions. And then the, the 96 telecommunications act. And then in, on TV, it was, it was, there were some rules called the financial syndication rules that prevented networks from owning the content that they also syndicated. So there were a bunch of rules. And that, like, so when Bill Cosby, I mean, I, he's like a bad guy, obviously, but in the, he was yeah. like, had one of the first prominent shows with like a black middle-class family, the Cosby show. And it's like, originally, I think they wanted ABC or somebody wanted him to like do, he was famous when he pitched it, but they wanted him to be like a lounge singer. And he said, no, <laughs> I want to. Would, would have been a little bit closer to his actual personality if he was a lounge singer. <laughs> um, point is, so Bill Cosby was able to say, because so it used to be that the networks just sort of put on what they put on and they controlled it. And then when they were no longer allowed to just put, you know, own the content that they were producing for primetime, all of a sudden they had to buy from studios or from independent producers. And then Bill Cosby could say, look, I want to do the show the way I want to do it. And hey, ABC, if you won't do it, I'll sell it to NBC. Mm-hmm. And so it created a market and that allowed for, you know, some of the most um, kind of creative television was in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s with, you know, All in the Family and Sanford and Sons and Seinfeld and kind of it created this model because markets work, right? Mark, if they're, if they're competitive and fair, they actually work. 
And what um, and when you consolidate, there's a couple of ways to undermine markets, but the but the main one is to consolidate. And and we got rid of the FinCEN rules, and so now you see like you see this vertical uh, integration, which is what it's called when like the TV network produces right. all their and syndicates all their own shows, and then or like the movies, you know, and the, and the movie, the, you know, the studio system, which was the pre 1948 system, you know, the studios controlled the distribution and they controlled the theater chains, and so you had you know five guys that were controlling all of Hollywood and they controlled all the directors and they controlled the actors and they, you know, it was like massive control over Hollywood. And we're back to that now. Yeah, we're back to that. Yeah. It's really stunning how if you, you know, people used to describe, you know, the golden age of TV as being, you know, the mid 2000s, early 2010s. Um, And it it felt like there was a market, right? That there were all these different networks who were suddenly making good TV um, and uh, weird TV and interesting TV and trying new things. And now, like just working in the industry, like those that market has like dried up. And so we're headed back to, you know, the old days of ABC, CBS. SNBC, maybe Fox, right? Except now that's Netflix, Disney, HBO, Amazon. And yeah, like you said, those places are owning the content. They're not, you're not working for a studio in the, um, you know, to get in a little bit of the industry, uh, uh, you know, nuts and bolts here, rather than making the content for a studio, which then sells it to a network. And then the studio can say, well, if the network cancels it, we'll take it somewhere else. We'll take that show that Fox canceled and we'll bring it to ABC or we'll bring it to Netflix or whatever. That's not even possible anymore because now Netflix is producing the show themselves. So once they cancel, it, well, you can't you can't do shit with it. Yes, and and the the it's so so and they also have combined TV and movies, mm. right? So uh, you know ABC, you know NBC, CBS, they were um, you know they were actually they were not necessarily just uh, you know theater ch- movies and TV were separate, and now Disney is a huge television and movie studio. And so the aftermarket for movies is also getting, you know, undermined, you know, the residuals and all of that. So it's like what's effectively happening is that, um, you know, what this, the strategy of these, of streaming services, right, is to just cram down and destroy the power of of labor, of producers. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about wages. It's also about destroying their creative power too. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all about power. And what we're seeing is the resurrection of a studio system that is in many ways even more extreme than the studio system that existed before 1948, which, by the way, was broken up because of an antitrust suit that, that resulted in something called the Paramount Consent Decrees. Um, so it was about a vertical integration problem. We now have a vertical integration problem on on steroids. Yeah, it's um, it, it's wild. I mean, yeah, that studio system that you're talking about, that was an era where, you know, this this one company would own the, uh, they would have, you know, uh, ironclad contracts with the talent. Uh, they paid them peanuts and they uh, made them work on, you know, the movies, television shows. Um, and then they owned the theaters that they would be distributed in. They, they vertically owned the whole thing. And so they were able to control the entire pipeline uh, and had immense power over what got seen, what got made. Uh, and we are really, really moving back to that. I mean, talk about 
you know, I, and I'm, look, I, this this pattern holds in so many other people's industries. But, you know, just because we're talking about mine, I feel it happening right now, right? Like, um, it used to be that the most valuable thing you could do as a creator in Hollywood was to create IP, right? Was to create a new uh, series, a new movie, uh, something new that people would, uh, you know, that, that the uh, uh, studio could uh, bring to the world and... Uh, you know, profit off of, and then you would receive a piece of that profit because you created the IP, right? Like um, you created the thing that was being sold on lunchboxes. So you got a portion of the fucking lunchbox sales. Um, right. And now uh, these companies have moved to this strategy of purchasing the IP, st- uh, hoarding the IP, which turns uh, all of the people who are working on the shows into hired hands. Hey, why don't you come uh, work on Batman for a little bit? You don't own Batman. You didn't create Batman. You don't really get much say over Batman. You're just here for the summer, like helping out on Batman. And for that reason, we're going to pay you peanuts for it. Uh, And simultaneously, uh, so it's like they own an asset, a creative asset that you're just helping out on. So it like fundamentally, not just financially, but also creatively disempowers the creatives. And then simultaneously, they have so much power. They're also working to end the system of basically anyone having any back end participation in their, in the show or movie, if you do happen to create it, where, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, again, if you created a, a piece of intellectual property, you got paid every time it was shown or, you know, et cetera, you had, you participate in the profits and now they don't, they just don't do that anymore. They're like, no, nah, we'll buy you out. Here's like, you know, a couple grand and, uh, you know, we'll never pay you again, which is like, oh, maybe sounds good on the day it happens. But then if it's a huge hit, well, you don't participate in that anymore. Right. And also, you know, you, if you do romancing the stone today, you don't get to do the follow on, which is, you know, back to the future. Right. So the right. weird, fun, creepy, interesting stuff, the stuff that teaches us about who who we are, the stuff that takes risks, the stuff that challenges power yeah. doesn't get made, right? Because the, because nobody who can challenge power has any power anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So like as just an example, you know, in the 1930s, the Hollywood studios would not make uh, movies that offended Nazi Germany because mm-hmm. they were selling into the German market. And this is funny because like they were all like <laughs> Jewish studio heads, right? But they were just like, we're going to not, we're going to not, you know, we don't want, <laughs> we want to keep selling to Nazi Germany, which is pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, but like Charlie Chaplin had an, an independent uh, production company and actually FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt called him up and said, hey, you know, I really want to encourage you to make The Great Dictator, which was a, a satire of of, um, of Hitler. Right. And and he did. And and it was, you know, the, but the way that we learn as a culture um, come in many ways comes from movies. So I started out my piece on Disney by saying, you know, I we used to work in Congress and one of the, you know, I learned about uh, I, I like learned about the U.S. Marshals, which are this branch of government, and then they basically go out and they serve arrest warrants, and it was like sort of depressing. But they had all this this fancy equipment that helped them serve arrest warrants better. And I was like, when did you get funding for all of this? And they said, oh, in the '90s. And I was like, well, when? Why is that? And they were like, oh, because the movie The Fugitive came out, and that's when Congress finally understood what we do. <laughs> um, you know, it's like it's like it's true. You 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 know, movies help contextualize our world. So when you have um, today, you know, you will never see a, a Chinese um, villain in movies, right? Yeah. Because there's so much control that the Chinese censors now have over Hollywood. And I want to contrast this to a very different market, a market that's actually functional, and that is the podcast market. I was thinking the same see, thing. 
Yeah, no, so 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 podcasting, it's this fascinating kind of almost accidental market where you see a separation of production and advertising um, and distribution, basically because Apple hasn't done anything with their with their podcast app, and that's what a lot of people use. Right. They, so they're not uh, tracking and they're not automating things. And so what you see is a diversity of voices and a diversity of business models. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and because it's so easy, it is that market where it's so easy to access. Anyone can open up their podcast app, hit add, do a little search. It immediately, the podcast immediately pops up because they're using Apple's database, most likely, which is Apple, Apple sort of has an open API for that, I imagine. Um, and, they, you know, very little of it is paywalled or anything like that. And so, yeah, it's a very open, uh, you know, that word of mouth process that brought people in the theater to see Back to the Future is also why, uh, you know, know, uh, you can have these sort of like very middle class podcast hits that right. do well for their creators and have a really specific point of view. Well, right. Like, and, like and our, show, our show being not, one of those. It's not vertically integrated either. So if you, you can make a podcast, you can distribute it through lots of different apps and there are multiple advertising networks that you can use. So the, there's not like you can not only can you just like open up the app and get a podcast, but if you start a podcast, you can pretty easily distribute it. And if you get an audience, you can pretty easily get an advertising network to start yep. selling advertising on your podcast. Now, it's hard to build a good podcast. As you know, it's a lot of work. But if you do it, you there's a market there. There's a series of, and because like nobody's rolled it up, yep. uh, they're trying. Private equity's trying to destroy the podcast market right now, <laughs> um, but but they haven't been able to do it. And as a result, we have this immense and and kind of vibrant and really cool. Um, kind of podcasting world yeah. for the moment. But if you imagine if Disney decided to move into podcasts and they bought Earwolf and they bought Luminary and they bought Maximum Fun and they bought uh, Joe Rogan and they bought all, you know, every, like all these podcasts, put them behind a paywall or even just, you know, figured out some way to make sure that or they're cut podcasts. cut a deal with Apple. Cut a deal with Apple, exactly. They get, they make an app that's the best app. They they come up with all these various reasons that you have to use that app. Oh, you could subscribe the other way, but no, you're probably going to use that app. Then eventually they start paywalling them, et cetera, et cetera. Then you only have a couple of, of executives deciding what po kind of podcasts to play. Then they say, hey, we're going to move into the Chinese market. So now the podcasts that we're going to approve have to be uh, not insulting to China, but also they have to really work internationally. Like they can't be too specific <laughs> or, um, right. you know, they can't no, be like, right. they can't be like set in New York. Like they have to be about stuff that everybody likes, like uh, sex jokes or uh, makeup. Right. You're basically right. describing what's happened to TV in the last couple of years. Right. Like you're starting to see those ways that like that massive amount of power really distorts what gets made. Right. And the the, uh, the other analogy would be then to what's happened in newspapers. So the way that they're mm. going to try to do it to podcasting is they're going to try to put a lot of tracking uh, into the into the apps so that they that the advertisers will no longer want to just buy on your podcast because they trust you and they know you have a relationship with your audience. They're going to say, oh, we know what the audience does and we're going to hit them where it's cheapest. And then you lose a bunch of your advertising revenue and you kind of get starved out. And that's what's happened to newspapers all over the world, frankly, is that like the local, if you want to hit local audiences, you know, in Pittsburgh, you don't have to go to the Pittsburgh um, you know, Courier or whatever the newspaper was, which doesn't really exist anymore. You can go to Facebook, right? Because they know everyone in, in, in Pittsburgh or Google, they know everyone in Pittsburgh. And so the advertising money that used to finance news gathering and creative output 
um, no longer does that because you have these kind of central intermediaries that have accumulated large amounts of data and can and can put and can like put advertising can match that with advertising inventory. So that's kind of how you'll see it. My guess is that's how private equity is going to try to ruin. Um, <laughs> I guarantee you, there are a bunch of annoying tech bros right now in Silicon Valley thinking about how to ruin podcasting. Oh yeah. Um, oh, I mean, they've tried. I mean, Luminary was an attempt to do to do that. Um, yeah. And luckily, it seems to have failed. I don't ever hear anybody talking about using Luminary. Um, uh, I'm not, uh, right. you know, but that's not to say it won't fail in the future. Um, and so just for the folks listening out there, when these apps start coming, don't use them. Stick with your crappy old independent uh, podcast app. Well, no, there's a good one. I use Overcast, very nice independently developed app. And do it the old fashioned way as best you can. Stay on the <laughs> stay on the boat as long as you can before you escape uh, as it sinks. <laughs> well, let's, let me, let me, let me take, go optimistic here because I don't want people to think that this is all going to just collapse, right? Because it doesn't have to. And that's like, so I have a book out called Please. Goliath, The Hundred Year War with Monopoly Power and Democracy. And one of the things that we, you know, I, I want to tell a historical, like the, the story here is about whether we have a democracy or not, because we're talking about a political question, right? And so it's like, yeah, sure. Use Overcast, you know, use podcast apps that are going to kind of enable liberty. But fundamentally, we need the Federal Trade Commission to step in and prevent, you know, the the mergers in the podcasting industry. Yep. We need the Department of Justice or we need the state attorney generals or you need Javier Becerra from California to step in and say, hey, Disney, you can't do what you're doing or Google, you can't do what you're doing. And that's starting to happen. But like fundamentally, these are po these are political problems. Like mm -hmm. this is what politics is about. And so it's like people in Hollywood really should start getting... You know, you you guys are members of the of the WGA, or you're members of, um, you know, you're members of of the Directors Guild, or the Actors Guild, or IATSE, or any of these other. Like, those are political institutions who should be fighting for the industries that you're working in, fighting for your political rights to express yourselves, your creative rights to express yourselves, and your audiences. You know, the the audiences of these of the of movies and of this creative content of video games, and they, people are so passionate about this stuff. And and you should not have an intermediary, whether it's Disney, whether it's you know this the Chinese censors, uh, uh, whether it's Google, whoever it is. They should not. They should be facilitating the interaction between the the creator and the audience. They shouldn't be intermediating it in a way that's harmful. And that's what these monopolies are doing. And fundamentally, what we're seeing now is is a total shift in our politics. Right? It's a little bit disguised because people are super confused because of Trump, and it all seems so crazy. But like you're seeing this immense turnover after the financial crisis where political economy and monopoly power is being recentered at the core of how we think about what politics is for. Mm. Well, let's keep talking about that, but we got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Matt Stoller. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. 
Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Matt Stoller. Um, so Matt, you were giving us the optimistic view that we don't have to accept that every part of the economy is going to slide into monopoly. Um, and I have to say, I, I would like to share that optimism. Your book is all about how we used to have a period in American history where politically we fought back against these monopolies where, you know, and again, you you raised a good point that individual people can't stop monopoly by themselves, right? You, uh, you know, just subscribe Subscribing to people on Patreon and and uh, you know little magazines and and independent podcasts or whatever is not going to create the economy that we want to have. That's going to cause those things to flourish. We have to do it as a group political exercise. It's what I always talk about on this show. Individual action is often not enough. We need to come together as a society and make societal changes if we want society to be better. Um, and so we ha- we did that in the past in America. Uh, we actually fought back against monopolies successfully for decades and now we're not we're backsliding so tell tell me about that a little bit like what were the steps that were taken in the past to actually break up monopolies right so let me just let me just observe one i think one thing that's important just for the optimistic frame because we really shouldn't be disempowered we actually are starting to fight against monopolies again like this the the movement to do that has really been going for three or four years, and it is beginning to work. It doesn't seem that way yet, but it is really exciting. So I just want you to know that. Like, we stopped fighting monopolies, but we're picking up that kind of politics Hell again. Hell yeah. It's not obvious, and I can go into why I think that that's the case, but I just wanted to frame that. So uh, my book starts with um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt in 1910 giving this incredible, giving this speech in Osawatomie, Kansas, in the mud to farmers, talking about the great crisis of special interest in America. And it's the third crisis of America, the first one being the Revolutionary War, the second one being the great contest with the slave power in the Civil War. And now we have this giant problem with this third crisis, the corporation, right? What do we do with this thing called the corporation, the crunching of bones under the railroads, the the steel mills, you know, the the standard oil, the octopus strangling our liberties. Like, mm-hmm. what do we do about that? And, and Teddy Roosevelt gives this speech and comes out with this theory called the new nationalism, which says, just concentrate power under the government. 
which looks a lot like fascism, actually, which emerges when you know a few years later. Yeah, that sounds. Like, says, that almost sounds like the system that China has today, where it's it a is. state-sponsored monopoly. Yeah. Everyone thinks of Teddy Roosevelt as a great trust buster. And what I show in Goliath is that he actually was kind of a, a proto-Mussolini in a lot of ways. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, although you, it was very, I mean, it wasn't, you know, because fascism hadn't happened yet, like, or it hadn't been coined, but fascism is basically a variant of aristocracy. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was, he, he's known as a great trust buster because he used the Sherman Act, but that was really because he was trying to establish with J.P. Morgan, who was kind of the great b- boss of corporate America, that Teddy Roosevelt was in charge, not uh, J.P. Morgan. But in 1912, when he ran for Congress or for president again, he wanted to actually get rid of the antitrust laws because he he actually liked monopolies. But the point is, is the 1912 election was the election in which we determined that was all about how are we going to structure corporate America, mm-hmm. right? That was sort of the big bang of American corporate politics. And it reached back to the founding of the country, questions of monopoly uh, and banking power, which Americans had always understood as a political threat. And that in that election, Woodrow Wilson won. And Woodrow Wilson essentially laid the template down for what we would do. He did 18 months that was just amazing. Um, and, and, you know, banned child labor, just all these incredible things. And then World War I started. And World <laughs> War I was such a big deal that the U.S. stock market shut down for six months. Wow. Right. Because it was, it's like they just didn't know how to run things without, with Europe at war. Mm-hmm. Right. It was crazy how, what a big deal. 100,000 Americans were stuck in Europe. It was just like the, the World War I changed everything. And what Woodrow Wilson did, he eventually took the U.S. into World War I. And he said, you know, this, the new freedom, which was his frame for how he was going to bring industrial democracy, we're not just going to bring democracy, industrial democracy in America anymore. We're going to bring it into the heart of the old, the, the heart of the aristocracies and monarchies of, of Europe, because if you don't, it leads to world war, which is catastrophic. And so he tried to do that. He said, we're, we're going to bring the new freedom worldwide. And that was the treaty attempt to pass the Treaty of Versailles. And it was a catastrophe. There was a massive boom and then a massive bust. And Finally, the, the people just had had enough, and they elected this plotting mediocrity named Warren Harding. I mean, he used to talk about. It. He's like, I I'm a mediocrity. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't play cards, you know. Um, but he died. Uh, he died pretty quickly. But the the thing is, is the Roaring Twenties was this period when people didn't believe in democracy anymore. So Walter Lippmann wrote a couple books, basically saying democracy doesn't work. The U.S. Army Training Manual listed democracy as a kind of a natural national security threat. Said it was like demagogue. Like there was it was this decade that you know the KK. KKK was just ascendant, right? Because there was a rural depression. And uh, and the KKK was the big issue at the 1924 Democratic National Convention. Uh, and the KKK forces won. It, actually, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, and the mayor of Portland, Maine in 1922 were both KKK. Um, which, by the way, in the 1920s, the KKK was also a for-profit uh, Ponzi scheme type of thing. They sold, not Ponzi scheme, but it was a for-profit sort of Amway-style multi-level marketing company. Because what, they were and selling they the sold- hoods for profit? They were selling, they were literally selling the robes for profit. Um, and then it collapsed in a sex scandal. Like it was amazing. Like it was just, it's super fucking weird, right? Um, anyway, um, so so this is, I go over this this really scary decade in the 1920s and I talk about um, one of the, these all-time great American villains, which nobody knows anymore, is this guy named Andrew Mellon, who was the secretary of the treasury from 1921 to 1932 and also the third richest man in the world or in the country. He owned three Fortune 500 companies. He was engaged in self-dealing. He basically ran the IRS for his as his own political machine and gave himself massive tax tax cuts. Um, he threatened his enemy. He was like this fascinating guy. And um, 
And then he was he basically he was running his companies while at the Treasury Department, um, and he yeah no it's like there are all so many parallels to the way that that politics operates today. Yeah, and uh, there were three presidents in the twenties, and the joke at the time was, um, you know, three presidents served under Mellon, right? And um, <laughs> and then uh, thank you for like the chortle. It doesn't really deserve. It's like, if this were 1927, you'd be like, oh man, that's a great, you know, but like it's, anyway, so it's, it's just like fascinating kind of really dark period where we almost, we pretty much almost went uh, fascist. It was a, it was a corporatist decade around the world. That's when Italy went fascist. That's the beer hall putsch in Germany. Like things were not going particularly well in terms of team democracy. Right. Mm. And then in the thirties, um, there was the economic collapse. And that's when the second major character of my book, the first one is Mellon. He kind of casts the shadow over the 20th century. And the second one is this guy named Wright Patman, who is a student of Brandeis, uh, kind of an ally of, of FDR, but a populist from rural Texas. And he gets into Congress in 1929. And he, he, he basically organizes uh, veterans from World War I. And there's like 10 million veterans or something. There's a large number of veterans. And he says during the uh, in, in 1929, he introduces a bill to get them an accelerated pension for their service in World War One, which isn't that popular then. But by 1932, when everybody is poor, all of a sudden there's a giant march and and protest in D.C. where people are literally – it's like Occupy Wall Street. It's called the Bonus Army. And they just camped out in D.C. saying, give us – our um, money from the First World War, we're in a depression. And Andrew Mellon is saying no. And uh, then uh, Patman is leading the charge. And then Herbert Hoover tear gasses them all. <laughs> when that footage from that is shown in theaters around the country, because that's how people, a lot of people got news. Newsreels. Everyone started booing. And that's when FDR was like, oh, I guess I don't really have to campaign against Hoover. I'm going to win this one. <laughs> yeah, man, people um, really, really hated Hoover. <laughs> he was incredibly hated. He was guy. such a piece of shit. Yeah. You know, he used to sit down <laughs> for, a, for a seven course meal every night during the Depression. In like tails, like not just tuxedo, but like tails. And the reason it's like a seven course meal every night. And the reason he did that is because he was like, if people don't have confidence that things are normal and going well, then the depression will continue. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he was withdrawing money. Like he was telling people, oh, don't worry. The banking system is safe. And then having his assistant withdraw all his money. Like, wow. so he would have it in cash. Like he was a bad guy. Wow. Um, the musical Annie, he has the song, Thank You, Mr. Hoover. Like, that's 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 about Herbert Hoover. Like, he was this figure. The Democrats ran against him for 20 years, right? And so what I show is that, like, basically the first thing that FDR— There's, you know, FDR actually puts Andrew Mellon on trial for tax fraud. Is this the same Mellon whose, like, name is on Carnegie Mellon? Is it the same guy? Yes, it is. So, yes, it is. <laughs> that, um, see, that shows you the power of wealth, that even after being such a, a piece of shit, you can still have your name on universities today uh, is something. But I'm sorry, I cut you off. Please finish the story. No, like, and his, like, grandson or great-grandson or whatever is, like, a Bitcoin billionaire or was. <laughs> God damn it. And then, like, it's just, like, it's just, like, it's— Of course he it, is. You know, it's so stupid. Um like extreme wealth is so dumb. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing is these people are like, like that's what's so cool about like FDR and Patman and Pecora and these guys is they like today, you know, I think like my problem with like some of the Obama guys is they like looked at super wealthy people and they were like, oh, you must know what you're doing. You're like really smart. Mm. And like these guys looked at super wealthy people and were like, you're mediocre. 
Yeah. Like you're just good at grabbing things. Yeah. And you and just, like, you just have a lot so you can do a lot with the stuff you have. Like it's, it, it, it's not a, it's, it, it's not because you're a genius. It's just cause you have it. It's just cause the rich get richer. It's, it's like the reason, the reason totally. rich people yeah, are no, rich I mean, is because the rich get richer. The end. I am so annoyed I have to, like, pay attention to Mark Zuckerberg because whenever he says anything, <laughs> he's such a mediocrity. Like, yeah. he's a good businessman, but he's, like, it's like a plain omelet talking. Like, <laughs> he, like, gives a speech about, like, free speech, and it's just, like, it's so boring and annoying. Like, this guy is, like, it's like a sophomore in college who read some books about free speech. And, like, I don't yeah. care. Like, why do I have to pay attention to you? Nobody elected you. You just monopolized a, a social mm -hmm. media because we weren't enforcing the laws, and now I have to pay attention to you. This is really fucking annoying. Yeah, he just um, bought like, he just bought his competitors and now he's one of the most powerful people in the world. Uh, I'm sorry, I just want to go on, a, on an aside. This is not about monopoly power at all, but I have experienced in my working life so many and I won't name names, but so many like dudes who happened to be in the right place at the right time, so they made a bunch of money, you know, uh they they started a website, got lucky, etc. Um and then as a result of that one bit of luck, Everybody, they and everybody else thought that they're geniuses and that everything else they're going to do is going to be great. And then you watch them, everything they do fails after that over and over again because they're not actually that smart and they're not actually that talented. They just got lucky the one time. It's like I had a friend who uh, went to Vegas with a friend and he was like, you know what I'm going to do? As soon as we get there, I'm going to put a hundred bucks on red on the roulette wheel. And we're like, okay, man, go ahead. Fine. He's like, that's his fun game he's going to do. He put a hundred bucks on red. He won. And then for the rest of the night, he thought he was the smartest gambler in the world he was like oh here's you know what you should do in blackjack like he was telling everybody <laughs> like he's a genius like no you got lucky that's a bad bet that's a bad bet no matter what you got lucky on a bad bet doesn't make you smart doesn't mean you know vegas inside out or anything like that right and there's so many like that's what that's what zuckerberg is like he happened to create you know he he was the guy who created the one site that happened to go he bought everybody else and now he uh, acts like he's a, a genius who should get to decide what our political discourse is <laughs> like give me a fucking break <laughs> No, that's right. And I think that's like the biggest that's that's I think the biggest political hurdle for um f that that we have, right? It's it's actually it's in our own minds. It's this sense that people who are successful are successful for a reason. Mm -hmm. As opposed to people who are successful are successful because they took advantage of a public policy framework that encouraged a certain kind of concentration. Yeah. Right? They're just like us. They're no they're no better or worse. Um, and there's this guy, Bernard Baruch, who was a, an advisor to Woodrow Wilson, and he ran a lot of the operations of, during World War I. And a general, or actually the head of U.S. Steel, came to him and said, you know, you can't tell us what to do. You know, make this is an intricate operation, and you can't just order us around. And he said, well, you know what I can do? I can just fire you and appoint a second lieutenant to run U.S. Steel, hmm. right? I mean, he had some respect, obviously, for some operational competence, but he knew it's this is not this is not rocket science, right? You can you can do this stuff. Like what they did during the crisis was not rocket science, and we need to have the confidence that we can govern, right? Because if we don't have the confidence that we can govern, then we're going to let Bob Iger at Disney, or we're going to let Mark Zuckerberg, or we're going to let Warren right. Buffett, or anyone else. We're going to say we defer to you, and it is that deference, it is that culture of deference that is the reason that we are increasingly operating in servitude. We don't have to do that, right? We can just be like, we can recognize what we all know, which is that people are just people. We are all basically equal. 
um, so, uh, for better or worse. That's a wonder. That's an incredible insight. Um, and because we have this cultural de- culture, culture of deference towards these billionaires, towards the Elon Musks, towards the Tim Cooks, towards the uh, whoever's in charge of Google, <laughs> right? Of like, oh, these these people must really know what they're doing, and we should listen to them. Um, but uh, it's yeah, why? <laughs> we're so we're, so. Here's why. Okay, so I go into this in the 1950s. We built a new ideology, and this this came from a couple of scholars on the left and the right. So John Kenneth Galbraith, Richard Hofstadter, and then Milton Friedman, Robert Bork, a couple of others. They built a sort of a fake history, and they said, you know, political economy, corporations, banks, that stuff is not part of politics. That is science. Let the economists, the scientists, handle that. Politics is about social questions like, you know, conformity or flag burning mm. or or whatever. The economists, they know what they're doing. The plutocrats, mm. like the if, if somebody, you know, gets to the top of the bank, it's because he knows what he's doing. And politics is not about that. Politics is about, um, you know, abortion or politics is about sort of these social questions, which are important. But, yeah, but, it, that, but but we shrank politics to to these questions that don't involve our commercial selves. And that's not true, right? Because politics is is about power. It's about who exercises power, who who controls our lives, who sets the terms of our lives. And de facto, anybody who's running a company that's as large as Facebook or U.S. Steel or whatever is determining the uh, has power over our lives, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg. They're a private government. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. When you yes. have a monopoly. So in Goliath, I show this. And I show that the New Dealers, they this is how they talked about the world. They said, you know, U.S. Steel is more powerful in some cases than many governments. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said this too. He said, Facebook in many ways, this is a quote, in many ways is more like a government than a business. We're really setting policies, right? When you talk about Amazon, like they, you hire people, they hire people, they say, you know, you're going to be an Amazon marketplace policy enforcer. That's not somebody on their public policy team who talks to people in D.C. That's somebody who enforces policies on the Amazon marketplace. That's a governing position, right? So a monopoly, right? Disney is the governor increasingly of our creative commons. They're not just a movie studio. They govern, right? And I mean, there's there, it's a little bit more complicated, but they set the terms and conditions for a lot of the people in the industry and a lot of the ways that audiences can relate to mm-hmm. movies and you either take it or you leave it. So what, what I show in Goliath, and this is, I think, something that was kind of part of American politics from the 1790s until the 1970s, is that how we do business is how we do justice. It's not about whether we're for business or against business. It's about how we do business. And, it, and justice is part of business. So, um, so power is part of business. Business is part of politics. And we have to recenter political economy as the core point of politics. And that means saying to economists, saying to experts, saying to plutocrats, you know, you guys are, are these are political questions and we all get a say in this, even if I'm just a guy who is just like, doesn't have a particularly nice suit and tie. I get a say because I'm a citizen. And that's the other, that's the other piece is that in the 1970s, this, Philosophy that I talked about was being developed in the 40s and 50s coalesced into the consumer rights movement. And so a lot of the well-meaning people on the left decided, oh, well, I don't care about whether businesses are small or big. Business is just bad. What we really care about is consumerism. And they transformed our conception of what our political selves is from citizen to consumer. And when when that happens, all of a sudden, we lost our ability to see power. And our antitrust laws and our regulatory tools all of a sudden – 
we stopped caring about whether that concentrated power and started saying, well, is the stuff that we're getting cheaper, right? Do people <laughs> like, you know, Star Wars? Is 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 uh, AMC, are their theaters fine? Okay, if they're fine, then whatever. We don't care if they're independent theaters because there's no difference between right. an independent theater and, and big chain, right? Who cares, right? So that's what happened to us. And and we're reclaiming citizenship now. And, and yeah, and that is why it's so satisfying to now see, you know, politicians yelling at Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> at, a, at a hearing, right? And refusing to take uh, his bullshit uh, lying down, right? And saying, no, we we deserve, like, you have to take us seriously. This is not a sideshow. This is like the actual, where, you know, where the actual business of figuring out what our society is going to be, where it happens. Um, Absolutely. And and you're, you're seeing that is a, that is a symptom of the fact that we are returning political economy to the center of our politics, right? That, that Mark Zuckerberg is testifying and he's sitting there and he's acting actually like the global privacy commissioner and Congress is mad that they can't do anything about it. That's not something we would have seen five years ago. It's not something that we would have seen 10 years ago. There's major investigations going on into Facebook and into Google. This is not. This is something we haven't seen since really since the 50s or 60s. And this was this is a hallmark of the 1930s kind of politics is investigating corporate power. Uh, so that's why I'm excited about this moment because we really are learning, and we like our policymakers are learning, and mm-hmm. all of us are learning. And fundamentally, that really is what drives politics. Like our our democracy does. Like our politicians do actually respond to what we care about. We just didn't care about this stuff before because we had lost our ability to see power. And now we're learning to see power again. Yeah, I love that message that it's about power and not about price. I actually read um, Tim Wu's book, The Curse of Bigness, earlier this year. um, And he talks about how it was almost like uh, uh, Robert Bork, like advanced this philosophy that, you know, we used to have antitrust that actually went went after centers of power like this and saw the problem with monopoly as being... As being power, uh, but that that was very difficult for judges to enforce because it required them to think in a complex way. And Robert Bork advanced this idea of like, oh, you can just—it's uh, only if prices go up. That's the only problem. Like, if prices right. go up, that's the problem with monopoly. So, are prices going to go up, or did they go up? Then you can—you know—that's a really easy litmus test. And all the judges were like, oh, okay. If I use this, then I don't have to think so hard. This guy gave me an easy uh, formula to plug it into. Um, right. And then, and the way that they understood prices was interpreted through economists. So the mm-hmm. judges were like, because judges like fancy people. So judges are like, oh, well, I'll just listen to the scientist and he'll tell me if prices go up. Mm-hmm. And if you want to understand the physical manifestation of that, so Robert Bork in the 1970s transformed antitrust by saying it's not about the competitive process. It's not whether, you know, you and I would say, well, other competitors in the market, that shows if there's competition. Robert Bork said, no, no, competition just means whether their consumer prices are low or what's called consumer welfare. And then uh, what's the physical manifestation of that? That would be Walmart, everyday low prices, right? And Walmart, you know, you had all these independent stores and then in the 1970s and 80s, Walmart exploded. And people are like, well, there's no difference if you have thousands of independent stores versus Walmart because Walmart, you know, they, they're they just delivering lower prices. And it has, obviously it has massive effects on a society, but when you airbrush power out of the equation, right, all of a sudden, you know, you enable the growth of these giant yeah. corporations like Walmart and then eventually Amazon. So it shapes our culture. But also price is only one part of the occasion. How about wages? 
right? <laughs> right? Like right. Walmart has uh, so much power that it is able to drive wages down for everyone who works there because they those people have nowhere else to work in the town because none of those other stores exist. That's right. So that's it, right. And you know, uh, and then also, yeah, the amount of power they have to just shape the lives of the people who live there by virtue of what Walmart chooses to stock. Like if Walmart cuts a deal with such and such a vendor, then that's the only type of beach chair that you have in your town for sale anymore. Right. And that's a frivolous and example. Also, but if, if you want to make a new product, right, you you now you used to be able to go to a bunch of independent stores and like be like, hey, I have some pomegranate juice. Would you sell this? And the guy would be like, yeah, sure. We'll see if it sells. And now you have to go to Bentonville or Seattle where Amazon is located and negotiate with their rooms of lawyers who will make sure you get no margin. So what we're seeing is that, you, you know, it's much harder to start a business these days because they're just, the, the distribution channels are clogged yeah. up with companies like Walmart and Amazon. And that's true in the, that's what the change, that's what movie chain, that's what happened to Hollywood right now. Yeah. That's the other thing is like, um, so it's all part of the same philosophy. Um, and, and, and this is why, yeah. and this is why, uh, by the way, this is a, should be a nonpartisan issue or a non big business versus, or a non business versus left wing issue. Because like when smaller companies are choked out, uh, then that's bad for everybody, right? That's bad for like, I mean, everyone in American politics loves small business entrepreneurs, right? Uh, uh, that, and, uh, that the fact that it is harder to start a business than it used to be in America, that's something that everybody should be able to get behind. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing is a, a radical restructuring of politics. So, you know, a lot of people don't believe me. I have a bunch of re Republican friends now, and um, they really are concerned about this. So, you know, Tom Cotton, who's an Arkansas Republican, he tweeted, you know, when Adam Newman at WeWork got a $1.7 billion severance or whatever for his, for destroying, for just being a con artist, um, <laughs> you know, Tom Cotton was like, you know, he shouldn't get a $1.7 billion. He should be investigated. And this is why so many young people are going to Bernie Sanders, right? Mm. And it's like capitalism, when you monopolize, when you have this crisis of monopoly, you undermine the legitimacy of capitalism itself. And that's what's happening. And people on the right understand this. So you're seeing a rebellion on the right. And these are not, I'm a left-wing Democrat, right? So I'm like, their vision is not my vision. And it's a scary vision in many ways. But they see what's happening. They see the control that China has through our commercial institutions. They see the control that Mark Zuckerberg has, and they're afraid of it. And on the left, you see candidates like Elizabeth Warren, like Bernie Sanders, um, and, and, and a whole, you know, AOC, and there's like a whole bunch of others who are actually starting to talk, who are recentering monopoly power and political economy um, in our politics. And I think that this is, this is, you also see it in the business world too, to your point, right? Like there are bitter fights in DC now between not just, not just small businesses, but like Oracle is a bitter foe of, of Google and, um, and Amazon. And you're seeing Walmart and Amazon fighting. And you're seeing like all of these, these kind of, you see venture capitalists, you're seeing like the, the business world is breaking out into a kind of civil war because the monopolists, it's like a bunch of these guys that basically, I show this basically in the seventies, the business community essentially cut a deal where they would cartelize and monopolize the whole economy in these large and, and some cases very large companies. Well, now these large and very large companies are looking around and all of a sudden they look up and there's Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page from Google and Jeff Bezos from Amazon. And they don't actually feel like predators anymore. They feel 
feel like prey. Yeah. And so that's scrambling the economy in this and, and our politics in this very weird way. And it's like the left doesn't see it because they don't necessarily understand business and they don't really care about business. But this is really a fascinating moment. And we're about to have a war, like a really fun opportunity to really restructure our economy in these really healthy ways. That's why I'm an optimist. Um, but it's like, we have to learn. We have to know, like you guys, you know, when I say you, I mean like comedians, but about just basically creative <laughs> professionals. Figure out where the leverage points in are in your industry. Figure out the market structure that you want to see in your industry to help you compete and help you tell stories. That's what you want to do. And then policymakers can act on that information, right? That's the that's kind of the the great nexus that we can put together if we do if we do. I mean, we really can put that together. And uh, uh, you know, the place that that's happening in the entertainment industry right now is in the unions, right? The Writers Guild is uh, taking on the the entrenched monopoly power of the agencies and is one of the only <laughs> like forces in uh, the entertainment industry that is even thinking about consolidation as a threat to the industry. As everyone else watches it happen and is like, oh boy, Disney Plus sure is scary. Uh, <laughs> you know the the you know the other place that it's it's happening is the it's this is sort of this is the entertainment world the ultimate fighting championships there is an antitrust suit from the fighters against the um UFC yeah because UFC bought up a bunch of its rivals and so they're suing on on wages right they're saying our wages went down um and both the agents the fight over the agents and the UFC fight from what I hear the rumor is that the Trump antitrust division is going to file friend of the court briefs against the fighters in one case and then on behalf of the agents in the other case because the guy who runs the DOJ antitrust division is a guy named Macon Delrahim and he's like he's, well, he's terrible and he's both a- of those things are uh, run by WME which the head of which Ari Emanuel is like a good friend of Trump's so like he's like uh, there we go there we go <laughs> right no and, and and the thing is is that these industries when you concentrate them the way that we have what you get is you know, we concentrated, for example, our civilian aerospace industry into Boeing, right? Boeing is a result of a series of roll-ups. The last one was that bought McDonnell Douglas in the 1990s, and Boeing is the only civilian, major civilian aircraft manufacturer. And now, because it's it's it was mismanaged, now we effectively don't have a competent civilian aircraft manufacturer anywhere. So we're going to have to either buy from Airbus, which has its own problems, or the Chinese are coming with it with an aircraft maker. And so, what you actually see with companies like Facebook and Google. They seem like they're good at what they do, but they're actually getting worse and worse and worse. Yep. They look a lot like Ford and General Motors in the 1960s, which were on top of the world. But then the next de- decade, like Toyota came in and showed that they were actually really shitty. And that's what's going to happen to Disney. It's what's going to happen to Google and Facebook. It's it's already happening to Boeing. So that there's a there's a when you pool when you concentrate wealth and power, you also pool risk in a way that's dangerous. Uh, monopoly really protects incompetence. Like if you. Don't- don't need to compete, then you can suck at your job and we all suffer because now you're the only place where we can watch TV or buy cars or get plans yeah. or take a flight or etc. Um, and uh, but that makes you ripe to be toppled when our political establishment finally wises up and people start voting right. around this issue, which it seems like they finally are. Um, well, Matt, I got to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really hope people check out your newsletter, which is called Big and the book, which is Goliath. 
Goliath. It's really a great book. And there's really not anybody telling these stories uh, except for you. There's very few books on this. And it really helps recenter the way that you think about the economy. I really thank you for writing it. Thanks a lot. So the full the full name is Goliath: The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And you can subscribe to Big at my website, which is m a t t s t o l l e r dot com or mattstoller dot com. Now you know you should really be working in Hollywood because that was a masterful plug. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you once again to Matt Stoller for coming on the show. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our superstar researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK, for our theme song. You can follow me at Twitter, at Adam Conover. You can sign up for my mailing list to find out about tour dates and interesting factoids at adamconover.net. And until then, we'll see you next week on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.